Okay, real talk. When did paying someone back become social media? What do you mean? Like, say I want to see what you're doing and who you're hanging with, and you're not posting about it on your story. I can just stalk your pay app and find out what you're doing. Oh, yeah, that's weird. You do that? No, I don't do that. I use Apple Cash. It's built into your iPhone, easy and secure. You can send and receive money right in messages and keep it between friends, and then use that money to buy something at a store with Apple Pay. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? Maybe. Shh. Services are provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Terms apply. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Mr. Constantine, Dr. T.W. Andrew, Sidney Riley. On one passport, he traveled under the alias George Bergman. The man we're talking about in this episode was a British intelligence officer, and he's considered the most accomplished spy in history. Most of Riley's account of who he was and what he did was probably a lie. But we do know about his execution, ordered by Stalin. Welcome to Criminalia, I'm Maria Tremarchi. And I'm Holly Fry. Many knew the man on the hot seat today as Sidney Riley, but he was born Sigmund Georgievich Rosenblum. Probably. In fact, most of what is known about him should probably be qualified as a probably. What else but a tangled web would you expect from the most accomplished spy in history, though, right? Much of what historians think they know about him may be false, because Riley was a master of deception. Sigmund Rosenblum turned himself into a man with more than a dozen identities. He became a businessman and multilingual con man whose real line of work was espionage. By the beginning of the 20th century, he was working as an agent for the British Intelligence Agency, assigned to spy on expat communities in Paris and London, with dispatches to Germany, the Russian Empire, and across the Far East. A European term referring to the geographical regions that include East and Southeast Asia, as well as the Russian Far East. Rosenblum was born on March 24, 1874, into a Polish-Jewish family with an estate at Bielsk in the Grodno province of Imperial Russia. Grodno, now a city in western Belarus, is near the Polish and Lithuanian borders. He was the only son of Paulina and Gregory Rosenblum, a pianist and contractor, respectively. Or maybe he wasn't. Some reports suggest he was born in 1873 in Odessa, Ukraine, then part of the Russian Empire. Author Andrew Cook, in his book Ace of Spies, The True Story of Sidney Riley, states that Riley was born on March 24, 1873, as Solomon, or Shlomo, Rosenblum, in the Jewish Kherson Guberna of Imperial Russia. He writes that the man who called himself Sidney Riley was the illegitimate son of a woman named Paulina, who was Riley's acknowledged mother, 
and a Dr. Mikhail Rosenblum, the first cousin of Riley's presumed father, Gregory. Is he right? There's always that but, though, isn't there? But, <laughs> uh, so Riley told several wildly different versions of his own origin story on purpose. As a spy, he always wanted to confuse and mislead other people. He would tell the story that he was the son of a merchant marine captain and his acknowledged true mother, Paulina. It's also said that he claimed to have been born to an Irish sea captain, or sometimes it was an Irish clergyman, or a habitué of the imperial court of Tsar Alexander III of Russia. Riley himself really liked to tell one particular origin story that historians know today just absolutely does not add up. His birth name, he claimed, was Georgie, and he told this tale about his beginnings. Once, while attending a chemistry course in Vienna, he was called back to Odessa for his mother's funeral. And during the ceremony, as Riley told it, his uncle revealed that the child Georgie was actually the result of an affair between his mother and a Dr. Rosenblum, a Jewish physician who had treated her for an unknown condition. Riley claimed he chose to take the doctor's name. But recent evidence suggests that though Riley never wavered from his deception and he told this story a lot, the Dr. Rosenblum in the original tale that he told was a fabrication. The doctor in question was Riley's uncle that he used as a character in his yarn. The whole thing was just false. He had borrowed from reality and twisted it into something new. Riley's tale continued because he also claimed that he faked his death in Odessa's harbor and stowed away aboard a ship bound for South America. He claimed to have saved three British officers on an expedition into the Amazon, who then offered him passage to England in gratitude. That would have happened right around 1895, but there are no records to substantiate these claims. We do know, though, that Riley did arrive in England in 1895, and it wasn't long before he became involved in clandestine affairs. Before the Russo-Japanese War, he spied for... Actually, he spied for a few places. He spied for both the British and Japanese in Port Arthur. There, he stole Russian plans for the harbor defenses, passing them to the Japanese for a naval attack. When several British shipbuilding firms discovered that Riley had gotten the contracts for the Germans instead of the British, they considered his actions to be bordering on treason. But that accusation fell to the side when the Admiralty began receiving copies of German naval plans. He'd posed as a welder in the Krupp gunworks, supposedly stealing German armament plans. But most, maybe all, of Riley's actual accomplishments are murky and controversial. So we're really not even going to talk about his assignments, not many of them at least, because we'd be fighting with what might be fact and what might be fiction. To talk about Riley is to talk about his legend. Some historians see him playing a double role in some events, such as selling munitions to both the Germans and the Russians during the First World War. Historians have also established that Riley was entrusted by the British Secret Service with espionage in Russia through relationships he was able to develop through his miracle cure business. Uh, you did not mishear that. That was his miracle cure business. And if you were not expecting that, neither were we. By 1896, Riley had also established himself as a consulting chemist. Within nine months of his company's launch, he became a fellow of the Chemistry Society and a member of the Institute of Chemistry. 
His business, though, was not what it appeared to be. He was manufacturing and distributing so-called miracle cures to an unsuspecting public. Literally, he was a snake oil salesman. And that is how Riley met his first wife. And on that thought, we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor. And when we're back, we'll talk about how Riley's personal relationships were as murky as his work. Hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie. And it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash criminalia. That's thrivecosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash criminalia for 10% off your first order. Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? (laughs) Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's talk about how Sigmund Rosenblum got his first British passport. Allegedly. In 1897, Riley met 24-year-old Margaret Thomas. The short version of the story is that he married the widow Margaret Thomas at the Holborn Registry Office in London on August 22, 1898. But there's a whole lot more to it than that. There are many versions and many tales of Riley the Womanizer. Many historians believe Riley and Margaret had an affair while she was married to 63-year-old Reverend Hugh Thomas. Riley and the Reverend met in London through Riley's ozone preparations company, which peddled all sorts of fake cures. The Reverend had kidney inflammation, which was reportedly attributed to Bright's disease, and he was intrigued by the cures Riley could offer him. Thomas introduced Riley to Margaret at his manor house, and an affair developed between the two over the next few months. On March 4, 1898, the Reverend updated his will and appointed Margaret as executor. A week after finalizing that new will, Reverend Thomas traveled with his nurse to the New Haven Harbor Station Hotel. On March 12, in that same hotel, the Reverend was found dead in his room. 
No one, it seems, could remember any specific details, but there had been a doctor, Dr. T.W. Andrew, who matched the physical description of Sidney Riley, who'd appeared at the hotel to certify Thomas's death as influenza. Among the documents he signed was one claiming that there was no need for an inquest. Records indicate that no one calling themselves Dr. T.W. Andrew existed in the British Empire in or around 1897. About six weeks later, Margaret inherited roughly 800,000 pounds. The Metropolitan Police, whom Riley may or may not have been connected to, did not try to locate or investigate a Dr. T.W. Andrew, nor did they investigate the nurse whom Margaret had hired to care for her husband, even though the nurse was previously linked to the arsenic poisoning of a former patient. A few months later, on August 22nd, Riley and Margaret got married. Giles Milton, the author of Russian Roulette, How British Spies Thwarted Lenin's Global Plot, has said, quote, All accounts agree that he had a seductive charm, loving women as he loved himself. A string of mistresses would fall under his spell. Monogamy did not come naturally to Riley, and although he was usually fastidious in his choice of women, it did not prevent him from cavorting around London on one of his visits with a common tart named Plugger. Margaret was the first of an unverifiable number of Riley's wives and mistresses. Estimates suggest he may have had three or four wives and at least six regular mistresses. His relationships are as elusive to pin down as his work. At least two of Riley's marriages were witnessed by members of the British Secret Intelligence Service, who knew that they were bigamists but said nothing because they too were involved in the deception. He once entertained the wife of the assistant to a Russian minister, a woman named Nadine Messino. Not long after she met Riley, he reportedly planted stories in Russian newspapers claiming that his wife Margaret had died in a train crash, and he then paid Nadine's husband a large sum of money to divorce her. Nadine and Riley married in New York City in 1916. Margaret, though, had not died, and Riley was committing bigamy. In 1919, Riley and Nadine divorced, and although Riley was still legally married to Margaret, In 1922, he committed bigamy again when he married a young actress named Pepita Bobadilla, née Nellie Louise Burton. Pepita described their first meeting in Berlin, quote, For a moment, his eyes held mine, and I felt a delicious thrill run through me. And that's the thing about Riley. Through the accounts of those who knew him, we know that Riley's character definitely left an impression. He was suave, self-confident and charming. It said he was generous with his friends. He enjoyed gambling, both with his money and with his life. But he could also be cold and pragmatic, capable of using any means necessary to get what he wanted. On his personal stationery was the motto, Mundo no la fides, which translates as, put no faith in the world, or even more simply, trust no one. According to Richard B. Spence, the author of Trust No One, The Secret World of Sidney Riley, Riley was a, quote, mercenary of a rather specialized sort, a freelance entrepreneur in the business of information and influence. Commenting on his own character, Riley was known to describe himself as, quote, a practical man. But back to Margaret. There were many women, but marrying Margaret gave Riley the wealth that he had desired 
at a time when he really needed it for travel, and it also provided a pretext to discard his identity of Sigmund Rosenblum for a fresh, new Irish origin story. Marriage helped him craft the identity of Sidney George Riley. Riley was a surname in Margaret's family. Or maybe it wasn't marriage that had anything to do with that first passport of questionable origin. Author Richard B. Spence writes of the Riley name, quote, In 1899, he became Sidney George Riley by receiving a passport in that name, though he never legally adopted it or became a British subject. A patron, possibly his way into British intelligence, was Sir Henry Hosier, powerful secretary of lords connected to the War Office Intelligence Branch. With his strong Jewish features and accented English, Riley was an unconvincing Englishman, but this became his favorite of many alternative identities. Riley's new British passport could also have been a cover identity created by William Melville, who was the first chief of the British Secret Service Bureau, which was the precursor to MI5. According to true crime author Brian Mariner, and we definitely believe this, Riley, quote, possessed passports in 11 different names. Allegedly, he spied for at least four countries, and we think that number is higher than four. Secret Intelligence Service Captain Mansfield Smith Cumming once said of Riley that he was, quote, a man of indomitable courage, a genius as an agent, but a sinister man who I could never bring myself to wholly trust. It's believed that as well as working for the British government, Riley was also spying for the czarist regime of Imperial Russia. The newly named Sidney Riley, with his new bride, moved to St. Petersburg, where he immediately became friendly with members of the revolutionary underground. Richard Deacon, author of A History of the Russian Secret Service, writes that, quote, he was certainly being well paid as of 1906. He had a lavish apartment in St. Petersburg, a splendid art collection, and was a member of the most exclusive club in the city. Although still married, Margaret becomes less of a character in Riley's story around this time. She remained in St. Petersburg while Riley went on assignments from the British Secret Service Bureau. One early assignment, it's reported, was to survey the Caucasus for its oil deposits, compile a resource prospectus, and report the findings to the British government. Such the life of a burgeoning spy. Riley, who spoke several languages including German, used his linguistic skills to join the German army on the Western Front after the First World War broke out in 1914. Great Britain received detailed information from him on German troops, which he sent, it said, by carrier pigeon. We are going to take a quick break here for a word from our sponsor. Many modern historians consider Riley to be the first 20th century super spy. But was he the inspiration for the character James Bond? Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's talk about Riley's arrest and execution and how he may have been undermined by another British agent. Riley returned to Russia in the aftermath of the Bolshevik Revolution in an attempt to both give aid to anti-Bolsheviks and to topple Vladimir Lenin, the head of the Bolshevik party. The most often cited plan is this. He had prepared a covert plot to use the disillusioned guards protecting the Kremlin 
to kill key figures in the Soviet government, including Lenin, at a meeting at the Bolshoi Theater. In a twist of fate, his preparations were undermined by another assassination attempt on Lenin, this by Fanny Kaplan, which triggered the Red Terror that resulted in the deaths of hundreds of thousands of suspected counter-revolutionaries. Once news reached the press, Riley was vilified as a key conspirator, and he was sentenced to death in absentia. A manhunt was ordered, but Riley had vanished by the time the secret police reached his St. Petersburg apartment. Riley escaped through Finland, but he was lured back to Russia by a fake organization created by the Joint State Political Directorate to capture him. The Joint State Political Directorate, or OGPU as it was called, was the Intelligence and State Security Service and Secret Police of the Soviet Union from 1923 to 1934. Ernest Boyce, the British Secret Intelligence Service Station Chief in Helsinki, wrote to Riley asking him if he would meet the leaders of the Monarchist Union of Central Russia, a right-wing nationalist organization, out of Moscow. Riley replied, quote, Much as I am concerned about my own personal affairs, which, as you know, are in a hellish state, I am, at any moment, if I see the right people and prospects of real action, prepared to chuck everything else and devote myself entirely to the syndicate's interests. I was 51 yesterday, and I want to do something worthwhile while I can. He met with boys in Paris before crossing the Finnish border on September 25, 1925. Two days later, during that meeting in a safe house outside of Moscow, he was arrested by the Russian secret police for his attempts to overthrow the Bolshevik government. Riley had been 100% convinced that he would be meeting with the leaders of an anti-Bolshevik group. There were claims that Boyce was a double agent and had been paid for information about British intelligence agents. But this, like other stories, has many versions. In this version of Riley's life story, Boyce may have been responsible for betraying him through a counterintelligence operation run by Soviet agents. That operation, called Operation Trust, ran from 1921 to 1926, and it was created specifically to tease out the man the Soviet intelligence groups considered their most formidable enemy, and that was British agent Sidney Riley. Riley was brought to Lubyanka prison in Moscow, and the man incarcerated in cell 73 was kept a closely guarded secret. According to the Soviet account of his interrogation, Riley wasn't physically tortured, but he was subjected to severe psychological torture, including a mock execution, an act that terrified him enough to possibly sign a confession. Though he was willing to give full information on the British and American intelligence services, Riley's appeal failed. Riley was regularly taken from the Lubyanka prison after dark and driven to the Sokolniki district for walks in the woods. Riley was always dressed in the uniform of the Soviet secret police for these outings. He was a secret prisoner, so all of this was so that his movements could be concealed. By November 4th, it was decided that Riley had nothing left to give, and it was believed that the longer he remained alive, the greater the chance word of his incarceration would leak out. Stalin, it said, quote, anticipated this situation and ordered his execution. On the evening of November 5th, 1925, thinking that he was going for another walk in the woods, Riley was shot in the back as he walked away from the car. 
A few years after Riley's death, in May of 1931, the London Evening Standard published what they called a master spy serial, in which they wrote articles glorifying Riley's exploits. About 20 years after his execution, a young naval officer named Ian Fleming was working with the Director of Naval Intelligence during the Second World War. While doing his work coordinating Allied espionage in occupied Europe, Fleming discovered the legend of a spy codenamed ST-1 in the archives. And ST-1 was, that's right, Sidney Riley. Years later, Fleming admitted to a friend that his character, James Bond, was largely based on Riley. But even so, he said, quote, James Bond is just a piece of nonsense I dreamed up. He's not Sidney Riley, you know. Today, many historians consider Riley to be the first 20th century super spy. In the century since his death, the truth of his life is still quite difficult to distinguish from the lies that he told. His reputation, though, has held fast among members of the intelligence community. One former British Secret Intelligence Service officer stated, quote, He was very, very good. A bit of a crook, you could almost say. Certainly sharp practice. But as an agent, he was superb. While Agent 007 may have accomplished his assignments, with the gadgets provided by the creative and innovative character of Q, we can't confirm if he drank a martini shaken not stirred. World War I spy Sidney Riley's accomplishments were due to his cunning, his wits, his appeal among women, and a complete lack of a moral compass. There's a pretty obvious connection as we walk into the perfidy pour with James Bond and alcohol, right? Oh, obviously, yes, yes. For anyone who doesn't know, James Bond's martini, which is called a Vesper, was a made-up drink. It was not like a drink he was plucking out of historical drink books. Made up for the That is a made-up drink. The books and the films. That drink, in case you're curious, was three ounces of gin, one ounce of vodka, a half ounce of Lillet Blanc or dry vermouth, and then a lemon peel for garnish. It's a lot of alcohol. Yes. And I thought, let's do that. (laughs) But we're going to do it a little bit differently. And we're switching ours up in a way that James Bond would probably be horrified by. I love to horrify a made-up person, so here we go. We are calling this Riley's Vesper. And it's really a very close one. So it's the three ounces of gin, one ounce of vodka. Please drink responsibly. This is a lot of drink. Instead of that dry vermouth, we're going to do grapefruit liqueur here. What a fantastic ingredient. Yeah, you still get like a bright kind of cutting flavor, but it's nice and it's got a juiciness to it. I would bump that up from half an ounce to more like three quarters because... It just helps balance out Mm -hmm. all of that gin and vodka. And I would almost like do this and pour it into two glasses and share it with somebody because that's That's a lot of liquor. (laughs) A lot of it's almost five ounces of just spirit at that point. And then do your lemon peel or I did one in prep for this to test it where I did a lemon and a grapefruit Mm -hmm. peel and I expressed a little of each on top and stuck them on a cute pick and made a cute thing. You are going to shake this like the Dickens in a shaker with ice. The point for that shake and not stir mm-hmm. is so when you shake it, you're getting more dilution of all of that alcohol a little bit because some of the ice will break down and it will water it down a little bit, which you do actually want in some occasions. 
And then some people like to double strain a martini like this. You can if you want. I just did it once. Into a pre-chilled glass because that that very cold glass is going to keep this tasting nice and crisp for you and not that, ooh, that just tastes like a lot of alcohol. It's really fascinating how temperature shifts your Mm -hmm. perception of flavor when it comes to alcohol. It's a good one, but it is very much like a heavy hitter. The one thing that my my beloved noted when he and I were testing this was that the smell of the grapefruit Mm -hmm. actually for him countered that heavy punch of alcohol. Really? Like just that aroma of it really like it does something else to your palate. And he found it to not be as biting as like just drinking that much straight alcohol. So the mocktail for this is very different, obviously, because this thing is all alcohol, but it's also very fun. It's very easy also. You're just going to use grapefruit syrup. You can pre-buy it. You can also make grapefruit Mm -hmm. syrup pretty easily. And then you can add either club soda or ginger ale to it and just make a beautiful grapefruit soda. If you are not opposed to using bitters because they do have a slight minuscule alcohol content, a couple of dashes of Angostura bitters did something very cool in this. And it made it like a really yummy drink that kind of has that little bit of bite of an actual alcoholic cocktail, but instead it is a little mocktail, a little refresher. Grapefruit is another flavor that I used to dislike and I have come around on. I'm still not going to eat a grapefruit, but if you mix it with vodka, I'll do it. I was about (laughs) to say, I'm actually not going to eat a half of a grapefruit, but I love when it shows up in things. And I do love the scent of it. It's beautiful. So uh, that is Riley's Vesper. And like I said, I don't know if he drank them. I don't think James Bond would like this version, but I like it, and I hope you do too. Thank you so much for spending this time with us while we talk about super spies and treason this week. We will be right back here next week with more treason and more drinking. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd.